for young people today, it's even worse. Their idea of a debate is like you flame war or own somebody on social media. And now. <laughs> Coming to you from the K2 studios in San Diego, California. This sounds great. You sound amazing. I always sound amazing. It's the world famous. Everybody sit off like BFS. Chris and Christine Show. Hey, what's happening, everybody? How are you doing today? Thank you so much for listening, and I am Chris. And I'm Christine, and welcome to episode 125 of the Chris and Christine Show. Do, 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 do. Oh, fantastic. Glorious. You know what right now is, baby? Monday. It is Monday, but we got Vacation Chris in the house. Oh, my word. Vacation Chris is a little extra. He's a little much for me to handle on a Monday. I'm not going to lie because it was a very busy and tiring week for me. And then I wake up to Vacation Chris, who's like, there's nothing wrong with the world. And it's like, can I get a little bit of my snarky Chris back? Because I could handle a little bit of snarky Chris on a Monday. But Vacation Chris is just extra. Wait, you said it's Monday? I'm on vacation. I forgot what day it even is. Don't even start oh, with me. Oh, my goodness. Says the woman who never has a vacation day ever because all my vacation days I am spending working. Oh, and not my man. business. I love my business. It's other working. And it's just it's like rubbing salt in the wounds. Like, oh, hello, wife. I'm on vacation for 10 days lounging. What did you do the other day that really ticked me off when I was needing well, so much support? Well, there's so many. I can't even narrow down just one. No. On Saturday, when we were like in, well, I was in go mode and needing support with the wedding and running from here to there and doing everything. And I asked for your support with getting dinner ready. And you, what did you say to me? I got this, babe. Don't no, you worry about no, a thing. No, you didn't. I you said, said, you know what? I got this. No, you said, I'm not really hungry because, you know, I've had a nothing day sitting around doing nothing and I just binge ate a bucket of Ben and Jerry's ice cream and just got done taking a nap. And don't be mad when you come home that the house is a bit of a disaster because I just kind of have let the kids run around and do whatever. That's what I came home to, everybody. Welcome to my world. Wait, what day was this again? That was on Saturday. Saturday? Wow. And you can't even remember that. You know, I don't what remember. What am I going to do with you? <laughs> you know what? I can see Alzheimer's I have. It's getting to my head. And I don't remember what happened like yesterday. I don't know what Alzheimer's is. <laughs> Some timers, because you definitely don't have a disease. Yes, you do. It's called forgetful husband syndrome. Yeah. Who has that? You know, I mean, I don't gosh, know. Gosh. But by the way, honey, you look beautiful today. You know, happy Monday to you. Oh, gosh. You're a little too much to handle. I don't know that I could do this, Chris. You're just way too chirpy and cheery for me. Vacation Chris is in the house. Well, what are you going to do on your vacation? Well, you know, I got big plans, really. Actually, I don't because people actually asked me at work and they said, hey, uh, where are you going on vacation? And you say nowhere because my wife has to work? No, I said, (laughs) I didn't say that. I didn't use the exact words. I did say pretty much uh, not going anywhere, uh, not traveling anywhere, really. Just uh, being away from work is a vacation all in itself. But also, I do enjoy being here with you, babe. Okay, so back to what you're planning to do this week, because I know you're not doing nothing. What are you doing? I think I'm going to work on cleaning the garage out for the first time since I moved here. 
Oh, your first time. I've done it multiple times, but yes, congratulations after living here for almost six months that you're actually going to touch a box. You're, you're, thank you so much. Other than the ones I've already used. You know, it's funny. I was in the garage and I'm like, oh, wow, look at all this cool car wash stuff I found. And I found all this cool like sponges and cleaning stuff and like two cans of W40. By the way, I, I W40 the front screen door. I'm not squeaking no What's more. What's W40? WD40. WD40. <laughs> That's what I said. WD40. Gosh. Uh-huh. Anyways, I WD-40 the screen door so it doesn't squeak no more when you close and open it. You ever notice that now? You go through the front door, it's all no. like, squeak, squeak. It's like... How did it go? Squeak, squeak. <laughs> I fixed it. You're welcome. You know, every man needs a good can of WD-40 around the house. Maybe some duct tape, too. I think you can fix anything. Oh, goodness. Was that a little ad placement right there? <laughs> yes. No? Not sponsored by WD-40. <laughs> Just joking. Actually, it's sponsored by the knock- knockoff. It's w- WD-40. 39. <laughs> You're way too happy today. Well, Goodness. it is vacation week, you know, after all. It is vacation week for you, but unfortunately not for me. I think I do need to take a few vacation days coming up soon, but I've been spending most of them doing consulting work. You know, by the way, and funny thing with your business, your wedding stuff going on, you had a big wedding going on yesterday and I helped you out with it, although I could not be there for the entire event because our babysitter kind of fell through yeah. last minute. Well, it's not that she just fell through, it's that she got COVID. Well, that's the same thing as falling through. Yeah, I mean, well, it, she's not flaky. It just was a very unfortunate situation. I felt bad. So we could not have a babysitter dedicated for the entire uh, day uh, yesterday for for the wedding. So I helped when I could help by transporting a whole truckload of stuff to the event. Yeah, there. you are super helpful. I literally couldn't have done it without your support yesterday. And shout out to you for being my rock star, my supporter. Are you flexing? Are you like, look at me flexing my muscles? Like, like yeah, yeah. like that's me. That's right. You know, <laughs> I, yeah, I like to thank me too. And um <laughs> It was uh, it was a great event down there by the by the water in La Jolla. So I had to go back and forth a few times to La Jolla to uh, drop off that arch and move the arch. You were- oh gosh, but do you remember what happened with the arch yesterday when we were getting ready to load it into your truck from here at home? It was so painful for me. Oh, you dropped a piece. The arch comes in pieces, by the way. It's mm-hmm. like four. I mean. Piece of wood. Six pieces. Six pieces of like two by fours, kind of like, but mm-hmm. cut in this weird angle. So they kind of line up, make a big hexagon or something yeah. shape. So one of the boards fell out of the truck and landed on your foot. Like the sharp side. So they're cut at an angle because they have to be able to make that hexagon shape. And I was unscrewing a piece so that it could fit into the back of the truck because I put a couple of different segments together so that it would be easier to set up once we got there. In hindsight, I should have just kept it in pieces and we could have just assembled it all when we got there. It would have only taken us 20 minutes. But I didn't. I, oh gosh, I was, I had it in like two big pieces. So it was three sections put together and then realized that we couldn't close the tailgate. And I was like, I'll I'll just unscrew, unscrew this one section. Well, it was hanging over the tailgate and I took off two of the screws while you were handling the other two sections but I wasn't holding the side that I was screwing. I was focused on the drill. And as soon as I got the last screw out, it slid right off and then went landing in full force off of And your truck is not low to the ground. Like it's high. So it had a little bit of velocity into it and it totally crushed into my foot. And I have a 
a goose egg basically on my no. foot. Yeah. It's like, I showed it to Jacob this morning. He's like, why is your foot green? And I'm like, well, it's, it's green? black and blue. It's, you know, when you get bruised, how it has like that really weird bluish look. Yeah. It's yeah. like red in the center and then purple and then like deep blue on the edges. And so I showed it to my sister, who's a nurse. She's like, oh my gosh, you need to get x-rays. And I'm like, you know, it's not painful. I think I'm okay. I have flexibility and all of that. And you move your toes. You can move those. Yeah, I can so. move everything. And so it was think, right by my toes. Yeah, if it was actually shattered a bone, you would think you would be able to move any of those, right? I, yeah, I think so. Or at least it would be really painful. But, you know, it's just ugly. And it was painful at the moment. So It looks like you were trying to do a karate kick, like <laughs> maybe a piece of brick or something. You're trying to karate chop bricks with your I don't foot. know. It's like if – it's like I don't know if you have – well – I call them like my toe knuckles. That's kind of a weird phrase, but it's like right where like if you think about your hand and how like when you create a fist, your knuckles pop up on my toes. It's like in that area where my knuckles would be. It's right there. And so I'm really thankful that it didn't fracture anything because that is a spot where like, you know, you have to you use it a lot when you're walking. You use all of your parts, your foot. You don't even think about this. You ever stubbed a toe? Or broken a toe. Well, I haven't broken a toe, but I have stubbed a toe quite a bit. My mom will attest for this. Me screaming every time I stub a toe. You probably heard me too. Um, yeah. Anytime you do anything, you're like, oh, ow, ow, ow. Well, it's a little more than just that ow, but it's, you know. Oh, it, yeah. That's me. You know what's the difference is? That thing fell on my foot and I go, oh, that's good. Oh, that hurts really bad. That's how gonna, would I do it? That's going to be how, a bruise. How would be my... I can't. It's We are a family-friendly podcast. I cannot reenact how Chris would explicit, react. Explicit, yeah. explicit, 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 <laughs> yelling, explicit, explicit, <laughs> running around, hop, hopping around, kiss, uh, punching the ground, yes. you know, punching the nearest tree. And the fact that you know that that's your reaction. Explicit, and yet you, explicit. And that you continue face, to do it. Face of anger, express, explicit, explicit. Punch things. Yes. That would be me, you know, if I get stub your toe. And then how did I get... How did I do it? I, I was even like, sure, you even got hurt i was like are you okay like uh what's that what are you, what's going on what's wrong yeah you know, it wasn't like a major like me because i might get very emotional when i do get hurt like that it's kind of like telling the world look i'm hurt when you do it it's like almost you're hiding it like i know that you're so funny because for you but you you know you've shared this before that like when you would get hurt you would use it to get attention and well, who does it? that's what it is for. i don't you just deal with it but yeah you know definitely was a painful situation yesterday but the wedding went off without a hitch it was a sunday wedding it was smaller but it was super fun i loved working with this bride and groom they were amazing and just really happy with how it turned out they really appreciate everything you do and i appreciate everything you do too and i think that the cool thing is i told you last night i said how was the bride and groom how did they take everything you did because i know you did a wonderful job you know you did a wonderful job but what really matters is does the bride and groom, how do they take it all in? Because it's really their wedding and they're right. paying for it all. So if they don't like any of it or for whatever reason they wanted this or that, because you do get those brides and those grooms who can be total jerks and not like what you do, even though you put everything into it. Yeah, my clients really aren't jerky. I mean, I've had just one situation where they were not great to work with, but to answer your question, at the end of the night, the bride and groom were actually the last ones to leave um, in terms of the guests. And they came up to me as I was on the ground unscrewing the arch because I'd learned my lesson. I was on the ground and Kelsey was helping like hold it in place. And the bride just came up and she was in tears and she was like, you made this day perfect. Not I wouldn't change a single thing. And she was so appreciative and 
I always love when I hear comments like that because it just, you know, makes everything worth it. It does make everything worth it. Do you think, too, when you are in that whirlwind of the bride or groom, because I've been in that experience myself, is that the whole day, it's just, just a whirlwind of excitement and emotions and just uh, you're like the center of attention. Everyone's there. The drinking's happening. The the events all set up all per- perfect. You got all of the people waiting on you, the staff, just all of the stuff happening. You know, you're kind of like, um, you don't, I don't know if you're really there to really nitpick. I mean, you're just well, taking I mean, it all in. It I just depends. People- it just depends on your attitude. But luckily I had a bride and groom that were, you know, very appreciative of everything. And, you know, they had taken the approach of, they know that there might be some things that don't go their way, but they're just so appreciative to everybody for, you know, making their day great. So it was a great day. But now we are on to the next because I have another wedding this Friday. It is a double wedding week. And what? What, is that? what does that mean, a double wedding week? I have exactly what I said, two weddings this week. In the same day? No, I had one on Sunday and I have one on Friday. Oh, oh, I, you know what? I don't know why I think Sunday is like, I, some people put Sunday in the beginning of the week. I always put it at the end of the week. Sunday, the, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, I Friday, know, Saturday. I know, I know, I know. That's where you're supposed to do it. But I always think of like Monday being the beginning of the work week, week, week. Work week, but not the week. Well, I know, because I always think the work end would bookend. The work end? The work end. Work end. Work end. <laughs> the weekend end would be on a Sunday, and then Monday you start all fresh and new. So, But uh, here's Monday. and um, I know. You're not making much sense right now. The point is- It's vacation I had, Chris is in the house. What I know. But me, the point you know? is, Sunday was a wedding, and Friday is a wedding, which means that there's no weddings this coming Saturday and Sunday, because it is Easter weekend. That's right. We Yeah. So speaking of which, why I took this week off was because of spring break. For the kids, I know the kids are off of school this week, so I'm yep. off of school this week too. So we're all off of school this week, uh, except for me. I'm working all week long. I know the principal, Christine, has got to be working around here. Yeah, you know what's interesting is I actually have to go and work up in a school district on Wednesday evening, and I was thinking about this, like the way that we do spring break in Southern California is weird because there's a lot of school districts that do it like the weeks before, before Easter, which I thought that spring break was always like right up against Easter. But it's kind of weird because a lot of people are on recess or vacation at my work this week, but yet we have to go do this thing in a district. And it's just, I don't know, it's kind of crazy that we're planning to do all of this big work in a school district right like before Good Friday. Makes you no know, sense. I think some spring breaks go the week after th- Easter and some go the week before, right? No, but these districts... They are already done with spring break. Like they've been back for almost a full week already. What's the point of having spring break away from you? It's like having Christmas break in like November. I know, but I think that it's because it's for those districts. It's not about Easter because maybe people like they don't say that it's specifically around like the Christian holidays, but it just seems kind of bizarre to me. So anyways, that being said, you know, I do have to work up in Oceanside one night this week and you and the boys are just going to have to have a boys' night. Maybe you'll go bowling or something. Will Ezekiel be down here for that? Yeah, he's going to be down here. He's really excited, and he's flying in this evening. And so I'm um, just really looking forward you're to having sending, him here. You're sending the charter jet up to pick him up, right? Uh, yeah, definitely. Or is he going in the helicopter today, do you know? I don't know. Maybe he's going to you know, hop his way down here like with the bunny, like Peter Rabbit or something. Yeah, has he ever like taken the, the bus down here? 
No way. I would not let my kid take the bus by himself all the way across the state. Because the bus doesn't stop. It's not like a one direct shot. It's like it stops somewhere, right? Stops yeah, and there's creepy people on there. Well, the airplane, what's different? Uh, airplane, he's on it for 45 minutes. A bus, he would be on it for eight hours unsupervised. Eight hours. My good. And like I said, they go to different spots. And they may drop you off. You may get on the wrong bus. Do they do bus switches too at different different terminals or whatever? I don't know how we even got on this topic. The answer is no. He's not riding a bus. What about Uber? <laughs> okay. I'm sorry, babe. So anyways, you're saying? What I was saying is that I'm excited for Ezekiel to be coming down here. I'm really looking forward to having him here for a few days, even though I am going to be working. It's going to be fun. Um, we have all the boys here and, you know, we've been dealing with some little attitude things with Jacob and Mason, but I'm hoping that we got that under control and we'll have a great spring break. That's my goal. Ah, yeah, that is the goal of any parent to have good time when you're home with the kids. Yeah. And that's the reason why that I took this time off so somebody can be here. I know you're working, but somebody can be here to be supervising the kids. That is not it. You I, thought the it, kids were going to be gone at their mom's house and you were going to be like free for all, Chris. You were like planning to go drive in the Z, go I, into the casino. I was, I was taking the Z to work every day last week, by the way. So the Z kind of now is kind of switched over from my fun weekend car to like my commuter car now for yeah. work. I just been taking it to work every day because it gets slightly better gas mileage than the truck does. Uh, and... You know, it's older and it's paid off. And it's, I feel like now the Z is kind of going into its second life. You know, it's, it's fun life. Now it's kind of going to its like its retirement days. Um, okay. Or it's like just out of the teenage phase and it's into its stable 30s. That could be it too. <laughs> that, 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 I like your idea better. Yeah. yeah. But I've been driving her to work every day for the most part. I got new tires for her. So since it has new tires, Miles will drive it every day. Oh, and I just passed smog with it. Oh, so exciting with that. Wow. Everybody is so enthralled right now. I know. <laughs> Like so I am. This, these are the big things happening in our world, everybody. And so, if you thought that you know we live this very extravagant, crazy, like exotic life, really, what we get excited about are you know bowling trips with the kids and cars passing smog, <laughs> <laughs> and making sure we can make sure they make sure they get to work on time. Yeah, absolutely. Well, anything else happened last week, Chris, that you wanted to chat about? I can't think of anything, really. Yeah. And last week was, I mean, it was just a busy week for me. It's really, we're in the height of wedding season right now. And so I have um, a couple of new clients that I'm onboarding right now. And next weekend, not this Easter weekend, but the following weekend, I get to travel up to Camarillo for a site visit at one of the venues with one of my clients. And it's just a really busy time of year. And so what I'm grateful for is that we're able to sit down and spend time podcasting together. And I love to meet new guests. And this week's guest is super interesting. We're going to talk with him about media and communications. And we'll be back with him right after this. Hey, thank you so much for being a loyal listener of The Chris and Christine Show. And as that you are a loyal listener, we have a very fun opportunity for you to get involved with the show. Ooh, tell me more. If you like to get exclusive content you can't get anywhere else and to receive free merchandise shipped to you every single month. Ooh, I want that. Then head over to patreon.com slash The Chris and Christine Show. That is patreon.com slash the Chris and Christine show. And welcome back, everybody. Today, we have another fantastic VIP guest. He is an author, professor, and researcher. Welcome to the show, Dr. Nolan Higdon. 
Thank, thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here and be with some folks from from San Diego. I lived there for two years and I miss it so much. Great city, really? great people. You used to mm-hmm. live here for two years, huh? Yes. <laughs> What's uh, part of San Diego? Uh, I live right in the uh, North Park Hillcrest area. Oh, I love that area. Did you have a favorite restaurant when you lived there? I had, I'm trying to think, oh, tons of all the Mexican food, obviously. Oh, I yes. loved every taqueria I hit. <laughs> Absolutely. I think that that's a standard here. I don't know if there's a bad taqueria in San Diego. I think it's kind of like the qualifications of if you open up and you last longer than a year, you must be good. <laughs> oh, for sure. I, just, I tested every one, never found a bad one. <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah, I do get, you get to, <laughs> there's so many of them though. Like almost every corner around here, you know, like, like uh, like almost every street corner. Yeah, we have shop. one just down from our street yeah. corner, but we live out in an East County area. So <laughs> on the mountains. Well, you lived here for two years. Where do you currently reside? I'm up in the uh, San Francisco Bay Area, which is where I've spent most of my uh, you know teenage years, childhood, and then after college as well. No, Christine's from that same area, aren't you, baby? The, no, uh, I'm from Central California. Get your geography straight. I am from. One, it's all one big no, valley, though. Fresno and San Francisco are like light years apart no, in terms not. of in terms of the lifestyle. They're just down the street. <laughs> Which uh, Nolan, have you ever been to Fresno? Oh, of course. Okay, yeah, up and down all of California. So, provide a comparison for Chris, who I don't know if he's ever set foot in San Francisco. Are they at all similar? Oh, no, they're very, very different. (laughs) Central SoCal and Northern California are very different. They all have their own little vibe and attitude, culture. Absolutely. So in San Francisco, do you live like in the city of San Francisco or in the suburbs? I'm in the burbs. I'm over in like the East Bay. So yeah, outside area of like Oakland. Awesome. And do you teach near there? Yeah, I teach um, primarily down in the South Bay, though, at uh, University of California, Santa Cruz and... uh, California State University, East Bay. That's primarily where I'm teaching. Wait, banana slugs, right? Isn't that what the Santa Cruz is? That's right. right. Now, have you ever kissed a banana slug is the question. What is a banana slug? It's a thing, Chris. It's a thing. (laughs) What's a banana slug? (laughs) Okay, you have to tell him. I've I've never kissed a banana slug, no. (laughs) (laughs) It's a real slug or is it a term for something else? It's a real slug. Okay. Okay. Yeah, it's their mascot, the banana slug. But I've heard that they have this like, well, my sister did it one time and it has like this um, numbing uh, to it, like she kick, kissed one. Don't, don't no, tell no, her. No, she was drinking the bottle of tequila. No, it wasn't the tequila. Uh, but you also work at CSU East Bay, did you say? Right. Awesome. Yeah. And what do you teach in those schools? Um, I primarily teach in, I'm an interdisciplinary guy, so I teach in education, communication, and history. When you teach in communication, is it like uh, broadcasting communication type stuff or what? Oh, no, I'm one of the... Um, the critical scholar folks. So we, I look at a propaganda news media, look at the history of it, their techniques, things like that. That's very interesting. And you were a history buff. So did you ever teach in K-12 education or always higher ed? Uh, no, I've been, I did some like tutoring in, in, uh, for high school students many years ago, but primarily I've been in higher ed for my entire career. Got it. The reason I ask is I used to be a social science teacher in uh, middle school and high school. And so you sound like you're one of my peeps. You're in education, you're in history, (laughs) communications. I don't know if I've ever dabbled in that, but is there a lot of propaganda nowadays? Yeah. um, You know, every time a new uh, communication tool is made accessible, you know, in this case, digital technologies, um, propagandists find new ways and to complicate and strengthen their propaganda. So propaganda is always changing and expanding and uh, becoming more influential. Well, I think that the only propaganda like 
communications that I used to be familiar in with is what you used to see, like old political ads and things like that, where you're trying to make the opponent look really bad or try and- still do that. Well, that's why I was wondering, like, is propaganda a thing? Like, all of the current global conflicts, is it more fake news or is it real? Well, like, like generally speaking, propaganda doesn't necessarily have to be uh, false or bad. Like, propaganda theoretically can be like a good thing. It can really mean just to inform the public. So think about something like um, seatbelt laws, right? There was a lot of government propaganda that tried to scare people to, to put on seatbelts for good reason, right? Got it. But of course, we know that historically propaganda has been used for for horrible purposes, you know, totalitarian regimes like Nazi Germany and things like that. But yeah, political campaigns for as long as I've, uh, for as long as I know in US history have used propaganda. And um, it's way more savvy, organized and expensive today. Um, That's why you hear a lot about how expensive it is to run for president. A lot of that money goes to communication consultants who are, you know, managing social media, managing messages, um, paying influencers, um, all these kinds of things to really shape the public's perception of you as a candidate or your party or whatever it may be. Really interesting. You said something right there that got me super interested in you were talking about influencers. So Chris and I talk about social media a lot. He's on Twitter nonstop, like nonstop. <laughs> well, I got to answer to my peeps. You know it's what I'm like 700 <laughs> hours a day. He's on Twitter. But we're also on Instagram and you see these people that are influencers for brands and things like that. Are influencers considered what is it? Would you call them propagandists? I don't even know what you would call a person that creates propaganda. Yeah, I would. Um, I'd consider them propagandists. I mean, social media has has largely been kind of. I think it's important to know, right? Like, the the internet could be anything, but any company or context in which new companies occur are going to be be shaped by that context. So, what we think of as social media is a very narrow way. A couple, handful of companies kind of created social media platforms to be really addictive and a- appeal to fear and things like this. And their, their business model is about, that is social media business model, is about collecting data and, and selling an analysis of that data to potential companies. Well, this is where influencers come in. I mean, influencers can use that analysis of data to try and you know nudge or, or even um, predict user behavior. So if these companies say like have your data, they may be able to predict how you might react when you see a certain influencer. Uh, the goal being to get you to react in the way they want, like purchase a product or sign up for monthly pay or something like that. So influencers play a crucial role in, in shaping how we interact with the internet. So what is the deal with like, uh, I don't know if this is true or not, but like your phone, for example, right? You could not be on your phone at all. The phone could be in your pocket, but somehow you're watching something, uh, I don't know, looking at, uh, looking at your, your furniture store. And all of a sudden, you go to Instagram. Next thing you know, you got furniture ads popping up on your phone. How's that happen? Yeah, all the um, well, all the companies share the the data they collect, and and they share it in real time. So that's that's one reason why. So if you're on one platform and you go to another, those companies are, are sharing that data, and they're not only sharing it with each other; they're sharing it with you know whatever um, company tries to buy their data analysis, whatever governments they have contract with, like the U.S. government has contracts. Um, with a lot of these folks. Uh, but even most, more so than that, because data is so lucrative, those who are most successful uh, in, in this marketplace are the ones who can collect data most often. 
And so in the last 20 years, there's been a big rush to collect as much data as possible. So if, if you ever see something called smart, right, your smartphone, your smart TV, your smart vacuum, um, that, that typically means that they have something inside of them, like a microphone, a camera, a GPS system. Um, and you usually have to connect them to the internet to use these devices. And when you connect them to the internet, that means they can um, collect data constantly and send it to whatever company or outlet uh, that's collecting, storing, and analyzing that data. So that's why when you have like the seemingly unimportant task, right? You're looking at a furniture store and then you go to Instagram and there's furniture. There's many steps and a well-orchestrated structure that's behind why that happens. It's it's not usually just a coincidence. So it's so funny. Today, I was researching, of all things, I was looking for spray paint that is safe for fresh flowers. And I was searching it on my personal laptop. And then I was over on Instagram just a few minutes later and decided to just scroll through Instagram. And it wasn't even an ad but it was a post by somebody where they'd been using it. I'd never seen it be like that specific. Could have been coincidence. I think not. But it's very interesting how all of this data is getting collected to be able to target messages for us. And one of the things that it makes me wonder is, what am I missing in terms of my feed from other things that might not be related to my areas of interest? Like, is all of this data causing me to only get a partial picture of reality and current events and things like that? And so I was wondering if you could enlighten us around like news media and how they're like targeting their messages for certain groups. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great question and a great point. I mean, you made a, you made a connection there that, that few people make that I think is really important, which is that th- this data collection the analysis of that data ends up shaping our experience on the internet. And it's very closely related to what we consider um, news. So what I mean by that is if, if you travel back to say like the 1960s or something, right, there's two or three news channels on the television and maybe you watch them for a half hour a night. And those news outlets, their goal was to get the largest audience possible, right? They wanted to get, they wanted to get, you know, the radical lefty and the conservative right winger to sit down and have dinner together um, in front of the television. Um, with the advent of cable in the 1980s, they changed their business model because there were so many channels. So they started targeting like one demographic and trying to maximize it. So, you know, you would just be like Fox News, you would you'd focus on Republicans, you'd be MSNBC, you'd just focus on Democrats, and you'd, you'd try and get as much as you could um, from that audience. Well, the internet fractured us even into more tinier audiences because now on on social media platforms, for example, we pick and choose our friends and who we follow. And the algorithms for those social media platforms give us the content that we think we're most likely to engage with, not necessarily the content we need. Or search engines will give us the information they think we want versus the information we need. Unfortunately, the evidence shows often what we want is to be confirmed in our viewpoint versus get the evidence that shows us what's true. Makes sense. Yeah. And so we're, we're kind of in these information silos because news media companies and the internet um, age now have subscriber bases. And so these are, these are customers who they depend upon. And so uh, what they found is if you start reporting like op-eds or stories that audiences don't like, they stop subscribing. So we all have these little areas of the internet where we're constantly being reinforced in our view and our understanding of other people is really just a caricature of other people. So if you're 
liberal, all the complaints you have about conservatives, you know, the studies show generally you never actually interact with conservatives. You know about these character of conservatives and the same is true for the opposite way. Um, so it makes it, it makes a tough way for a democracy to survive uh, when we're all in like these, these information silos. And I don't know how many of you guys know about like Plato's analogy of the cave, but I always use that analogy about there's like the, you know, the guys in the cave and there's a fire behind them. So they're conception of the world is like the light on the wall. Mm-hmm. And then one person leaves the cave and comes back in and tells them what, what they saw and they don't believe them because all they know is like the reflection on the wall. Oh, okay. <laughs> so I think, so we're all sort of in those caves is the way I like to think about um, our information silos. Right. I was just mentioning something like that to Christine just the other day. Wasn't that babe? I don't remember. Can you refresh my memory? Oh, I was just talking about an email <laughs> I just got about uh, talking about. Oh, yes, that one. Yeah, I was talking about an email. It was something about a uh, newsletter. It said something very similar to that, how like people, it, w- it was talking about radio and how it was about podcasting. And a podcaster was saying that, or somebody was saying to the guy that uh, he was opening a business up, of like a music business of some sort. And he was saying that nobody listens to the radio anymore. And it turns out the truth is 93% of Americans listen to the radio at least once during the week as 93 percent is not nobody right but the only <laughs> he was only looking at the sources that he was interested in looking at to confirm his own perspective is kind right. of what you were talking yeah, about a small little bubble of people right. that he that he interacts with they're the ones that say no i don't listen to radio yeah but your little three or four people isn't representative of the entire of everybody and so it's it makes me think about the world of podcasting specifically if you think about it being a subscriber base and like for Chris and I we've been in this business for two and a half years and one of the things that we have to talk about is like what are the off topic or off limits topics that we don't bring in because we do have to be cognizant of losing our listenership and so the areas that we never go into except for maybe in this specific episode are religion and politics because we know that it polarizes people and we'll lose depending well, on which side every, our listeners everybody's are Everybody's got an opinion on that stuff. That's true. Um, you know, there. it's a tough... I wrote a, a book about this with Nicholas Baham. We called it The Podcaster's Dilemma because on the one hand, thanks to the fracturing of audiences, there's now an opportunity to create a podcast about a much like smaller, narrow set of topics which would have been like, you know, the death of your uh, creativity if we were in like the broadcast era, right? Right. All right. Totally, um, yeah. So that's one of like the major advantages. But of course, like the disadvantages, there, there are so many choices out there and so many, you know, actors, if you will, who are, who are controlling these platforms that you have little power as a media creator. And uh, there's so many threats of losing that audience. So it is like this, this dilemma that you speak about for sure. Now, Going off of that, and I'm looking at a little bit of your background as it relates to the areas of your research, I would love, Chris and I would actually both love to get your perspective on cancel culture in the media. What type of research have you done around that? And what's the impact of this cancel culture on us getting reliable news? Yeah, it's a great, it's a great question. Um, I've, I've done a lot of research on it. And in our, my recent book with Mickey Huff, Let's Agree to Disagree, um, which just came out about a month ago, covers a lot of cancel culture. And one of the goals of the book is to get us to kind of just the, to the problem you raised just a moment ago. It's to get us as a democracy to start talking with people we disagree with, um, to do the difficult work to understand and grow empathy with those who we disagree with and also um, work to change minds, including our own. And one of the things we, we cite as you know standing in the way of, of doing that is what is called cancel culture, 
you know, I have to say like right away that cancel culture is kind of an ill-defined term, but it's something we, we generally sort of understand, right? The idea that either through loss of their profession or through public shaming, people are afraid to, to speak or lose their platform or, or whatever it may be. In that respect, cancel culture is a long, there's a long history of using shame and public pressure and professional degradation uh, to kind of limit limit speech. And what we kind of point out in the book is that folks who are right, left, and center are engaging in acts of cancel culture. Um, you can look at you know right-leaning people who used to make lists of professors who hate America. They try to get fired from college campuses during the, the war on terror. You can look at things that are trying to limit educators from talking about like CRT or, or gay rights in the classroom. But you can also see it happening um, on the left as well. Um, so, you know, folks who uh, debate some of these issues about what trans rights are ultimately going to mean or who shut down any discussion of what happened on January 6th, except for a very narrow scope of things. We, we don't end up with a lot of substantive discourse and it's and it's led to serious, you know, cataclysmic errors. Um, I point out to people that tech companies a month before the 2020 election decided to censor a story about Hunter Biden's laptop that later on turned out to be true. It was Hunter Biden's laptop. Um, I don't know if that would have changed the uh, election outcome, uh, but I do think that it's very scary that under the auspices of cancel culture, you have tech companies deciding what information the electorate can access in an election era. Um, I happen to believe that the public are, are smart enough. Um, we shouldn't be canceling professors from the right. We shouldn't be canceling journalists or commentators from the left. Um, I think people are, are smart enough if they have the right critical thinking skills to look through evidence and make a decision about how to vote or what to vote for, or who to protest on their own. So going off of that, as we think of where we're at right now, there's been a lot of really divisive stories in the media lately. I know that there was some recently in Texas about LGBTQ rights and trans uh, student rights. And then there's a story about um, what's happening in Ukraine and um, coronavirus. And so I've noticed that there's very polarizing perspectives. Is that as a result of this, I wouldn't say cancel culture, but this evolution in journalism to like try and play to the extreme right and the extreme left? Uh, yes. Um, on the, the, the media outlets definitely play up that that narrative, right? Like many of the things that like Donald Trump, you know, would say or do in office when, when Biden does the same thing, the democratic media says nothing just like um, now the Republican media criticizes Biden for things that they stayed silent on when um, Trump was in office. Mm -hmm. uh, unfortunately, this is a, this is a pattern we've, we've gotten into and it, it leaves us in a place where we really can't move on issues, but, but the internet adds an extra complication to it. Some of the most engaging materials on social media are those that appeal to hate and fear. So we start to see everything through the lens of good and evil uh, as defined by our party affiliation. Right. They're them and us. That's what it is. It's them or us. <laughs> yeah. Uh, a, recent, a recent study showed that Americans' number one fear is other Americans. Wow. What? Tell yes. us more about that. That's crazy. Yeah. News media has a lot to, to do with that. It, you know, that remember I mentioned a moment ago about how news media's business model is about preaching to a smaller demographic and maximizing it. One of the ways they do that 
is basically the old um, pro wrestling model, which is uh, you're the audience, you're the good guy, your political party's the good guy, let's root for them, and we will boo the bad guy, you know, which is a character of the other political party. You know, you start doing that for 20 or 30 years, and you get to a place where Americans uh, literally, more than climate change, more than terrorism, uh, fear other Americans. They think other Americans are a bigger fear, a bigger threat to their way of life. Um, and that's kind of where we're at. And it's really tough for a democracy to survive when, when people think that. So what do you think is the fix-all if you had to like figure out like a, this is a cure to fix our situation as is today? Yeah. In, in the book, Let's Agree to Disagree, that's one of the things we, we focus on is um, kind of three main areas that we, we break down in depth. Um, one is we want to promote more constructive dialogue versus destructive dialogue. Um, you mentioned cancel culture. We would consider that part of a destructive way of, of dealing with conflict. We think more critical thinking skills, both in terms of like the nuts and bolts of critical thinking, but also like critical theory, looking at, you know, who has the power to decide what's true and what's false, um, whose stories are told, whose stories are ignored, um, those kinds of things. And then um, critical media literacy for about three or four decades, other parts of the world have developed some media literacy curriculum. In the United States, we still have, you know, very little that is offered to students, yet we're one of the most mediated societies on earth. So we're constantly listening to podcasts and getting bombarded with advertisements and watching television and et cetera. Yet we don't train young people to think about media. We instead, we, you know, we call them consumers, like you're just blindly consuming. Um, so those are kind of the three areas we would like to see changes in the, in the book offers ways we can be more constructive in our dialogue as individuals, um, critically think our way through problems, and um, critically examine media. Now, going off of that critically examining, examining media and thinking of reliable sources, we want your expert opinion. I'm going to put Chris on blast for a second. <laughs> what did I do, babe? Dr. Higdon, <laughs> would you consider Wikipedia to be a reliable source? Wikipedia. <laughs> Um, so I, I promise this isn't a dodge, but, um, I need an I, answer. Help I, sister I, out. Chris <laughs> goes to Wikipedia for everything. And he's like, it's in Wikipedia. I'm like, but people contribute their perspectives to well, Wikipedia. People can, who do you think wrote the dictionary? Right? <laughs> yeah, I think, um, so in certain, in, in like, this is really, I think due to Fox news, I don't know if I'm wrong about this, but I, I blame them. Fox News sort of really came up with like the masterful branding of we report, you decide. And so people became like aligned with Fox News, the channel versus like the reporters. And I think sometimes it's it's less about do you read the New York Times or watch Fox News? And it's more about like, which journalists do you follow? Which individual writers do you follow? Do those folks have conflicts of interest? Do they have credibility? Do they use good sources? So when I come to Wikipedia, I couldn't say you know, all of Wikipedia is a terrible source or all of it's a great source. I would say, you know, you'd have to follow, you know, individual contributors to Wikipedia who do good work on Wikipedia, but I would never trust a whole platform or a whole brand. So basically um, he's saying I'm right, Chris, well, it's not reliable. <laughs> Listen, and go hey, to the encyclopedia. Hey, I love Wikipedia because I want to find something curious about a certain movie or something about like, see, um, I want to look into, say, the new MacBook uh, M1 chip. And they might have a Wikipedia page on the, the processors of Apple and they kind of go into the backstory. Yeah, for that kind of stuff, it's information. That's what I use it for. But if what you were using it, it to like research like historical facts, maybe, or things you know, like that. I mean, if you look up George Washington, I'm sure it's on there. 
Well, it I'm could sure be. I'm sure it's pretty true. I mean, yeah. And also on the bottom of Wikipedia, they have a whole list of resources. That is very true. See, there you go. But I couldn't cite it in my dissertation. Therefore, I don't consider it a reliable source. <laughs> well, I'm going to cite it in my dissertation, all right? <laughs> So as you are a professor and you're dealing with communications and working with students, do you find that they have difficulty agreeing to disagree or disagreeing respectfully when they're having conversations about heated topics? You know, this is kind of um, it's a, it's such a great it's a great question because it's a weird thing I've been wrestling with with how to explain. There's a generally speaking in, in U.S. schools that there's just a lack of focus on critical thinking, civics, and and debate. And so, you know, young people in particular, because this has been the world they've grown up in, aren't really exposed to those ideas. So it's, it's not a matter of like personally opposing. It's, it's not having the skills in a lot of ways. But I will admit, you know, there is a, a small few or handful every semester who, uh, you know, have, have gotten comfortable in the sensibility of like, I shouldn't have to talk to these people. I, I don't, I disagree with, I shouldn't have to talk to them. You know, they're it's, I shouldn't have to teach them. They could Google why something is wrong. And I say, look, you, you live in a democracy and unfortunately living in a democracy means it's a 24 hour a day job. You have to always be learning, reading, debating, trying to change the society for the better. And if you're someone who doesn't want to put in that work, that's fine. Um, but you're not going to have a democracy. Instead, you know, you should really go find like a dictatorship. They're always looking for people who don't want to think for themselves or do any work. Right. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. I think of with our kiddos, because we have three boys, they're 17, 12, and nine. And when they're confronted with something that they disagree with, um, they get loud. Like it's, I don't know if they know how to respectfully disagree. They're still learning and it's not a dig on them. But I think that in K-12 education, we're not necessarily focusing as much on how to help s- students take a different perspective and then respectfully disagree instead of you know, buying into that. Again, cancel culture. Like, I don't have to listen to you. I don't have to interact with you. You don't share my beliefs. And so like, I don't like you because you don't like what I like. Yeah. And I'm not saying that that's our kids specifically, but it's just something that I've been wondering about. And I just didn't know if it was bleeding its way into college. Uh, yeah, it has. And yeah, you're right. It's not, you know, your, your children at all. I mean, I'm, th- I'm 38. And when I was, when I was younger, my idea of what a debate was, was two people on 24 hour news shouting over each other in a five minute segment. I thought that's how you debated, <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, yeah. kitchen and table Thanksgiving. Yeah, <laughs> ex- exactly. And, and for, you know, of course that was totally wrong. And for young people today, it's even worse. Their idea of a debate is like you flame war own somebody on social media. Right. And, and that's not constructive at all. And I do think you need to kind of offset what they're seeing in, in social media and, you know, 24 hour news. If they're, if they're watching it, I don't know why they would, but if they are, um, and with, with, you know, saying like con- conflict is a part of life, it's healthy. Um, harmony is abnormal, but it's really about how we manage conflict. Can we manage, you know, differences and disagreements constructively or destructively? And, and it's really a job of an educator, I would argue to, to provide students with those skills. Yeah, that's super intriguing. It makes me think about like how do we actually how do we tackle that with adults? Like if people are listening right now and they're reflecting and they're like, "Oh yeah, I guess I have a hard time respectfully disagreeing with other people. I just cancel them or I just, you know, unfollow them or, you know, whatever it is or you're not my friend." What are some tips for our listeners on how they can start to make their way back to center? And I'm not saying as people are listening, they're like, "She's saying that I have to, you know, lose my morals." No. 
you believe what you want to believe, but you can also respect what other people believe and respect them. You don't have to agree with them, right? Yeah. And one, yes. So one of the things we, we point out in the book, we use, you know, real world of examples of, um, you know, of like trans activists in Florida, um, Daryl Davis, who's an African-American man who reaches out to members of the Klan and gets them to leave the Klan. We have these examples, pro athletes like Malcolm Jenkins, uh, these folks who have reached out and done the hard work to change people's minds. Um, and as far as tips, you know, I think one of the I guess the statements I would make before I get into the tips is that all those people you disagree with, you find horrible out there in the world, they're not going to disappear like organically. Um, It's not a magic potion. No. And so you you have to, you have to put in the work to try and, um, you know, get folks to possibly recognize uh, a lot of the, the problematic thinking but you, you really do that um, almost ironically without focusing on them. I, I would say there's a lot of work you could do focusing on yourself, um, developing like listening skills, developing empathy, you know, not just hearing people, but listening to people, uh, finding like that human level where you can reach someone, building up credibility for yourself, avoiding the, the knee jerk reaction to like lampoon, name, label or make fun of people. You know, these are these are difficult, difficult things we all wrestle with, myself included. And so I think being very self-reflective. Um, can be helpful in learning how to reach people on a human level. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think about when you see people making fun of others because they have different opinions. It's really more of a reflection on the individual posting the meme or the the statement about the other individual than it is on that other individual with a different opinion. It reveals more about, like, if, for example, if Chris and I were in a political debate and I didn't agree with him, and then I just started like posting things about him negatively and kind of demeaning him or trying to make him look bad, it actually says more about me than it does about Chris. Yeah, exactly. I think that's a great, great way to, to read it. You know, what, what is it about this person's um, communication style that they need to make fun of the person or attack the person versus actually engage with like the idea? Right. Yeah. I mean, go off to the, yeah. I mean, like, I think when, when she was saying that, it totally reminded me of President Trump when he used to be uh, tweeting all day long about, uh, it was all commentary stuff. A lot of it wasn't really about the actual, uh, a lot of mean tweets he was saying about particular people. Right. And yet you're still a fan. <laughs> I don't even know, Chris. Sorry. <laughs> that was That's, not meant for public. He might edit that out, I'll, but I still don't okay. it's, it's okay, though. But I mean, that's, yeah, it was, it depended on which um, information silo you're in. And I think this is what, you know, as someone who researches communication and media, Trump was like a gift in a lot of ways because um, he really laid a lot of things bare that, you know, Trump would say these these horrible, insulting things. He would spread fear. And for folks on the left, you know, they would say like, how could anybody ever support or vote this person, vote for this person? But if you were in like the right side or the Trump camp, he was speaking to you. He was making fun of the very people you hate that you, you know, blame or associate with circumstances you you disapprove of. Meanwhile, if you're on the left, you know, you could go in and watch any late night show like Stephen Colbert uh, or something like that, making fun of Trump. And you'd be like cheering like you're accomplishing something. Uh, but it's really just the same thing, right? You're sitting there getting off and making fun of Trump and his supporters. Uh, all the meanwhile, there's no like collaboration or understanding each other or trying to create any positive change in the world. Uh, we're all just kind of celebrating our lampooning of one another. Right. Yeah. I mean, it makes it feel good, I guess, for, for, for a hot minute. Does yeah. it? Does it really, though? <laughs> well, I'm just saying, not me. Have, have <laughs> I ever got a mean tweet? Uh, well, 
you're getting edgier, but go ahead. Oh, I know. Only people, <laughs> only people attack me. I cut the, you know, what does it do, you know? <laughs> cut them off of the legs. That's what you were just going to say. <laughs> I guess. Well, Nolan, talk to us about Project Censored. So we know that that's something that's near and dear to your heart. And when I saw that term, Project Censored, it made me think of like when people were talking about banned books way back in the day and censoring you know, what students would read. And I didn't think that we had censorship, but maybe we do. But tell us about Project Censored. Yeah, I'm a, um, an affiliate professor for, for Project Censored. And, and they've been around since 1976. And they're an anti-censorship, uh, pro-critical media literacy organization in the United States. But yeah, we, we do have censorship in, in the United States. And um, Project Censored has been at the forefront of showing particularly about corporate news censorship, about how you know, we've allowed monopolies to um, control our media. Roughly about six companies control our news media. About five or six companies control internet traffic. And um, they decide what is and isn't newsworthy. And there's a clear, you know, corporate bias um, in general um, that defines uh, what is seen as newsworthy. And then sometimes there's, you know, differences between Democrat and Republican Party bias on the actual news outlets, but anything outside of Democrat, Republican, anything that challenges that corporate narrative, that reporting largely goes uh, censored. It's not paid, it's not amplified, it's not shared in, in any meaningful way, and even suppressed by like search engines and things like that. So we, we have that um, in the culture. I think what confuses a lot of Americans is that when they think of censorship, they think of like the government, you know, coming down and drawing black lines through writing or shutting down news outlets. But in the United States, there's a really close relationship between the political parties and corporations that it's not clear sometimes where one ends and one where one begins. For example, like during the Trump administration, Sarah Huckabee Sanders stepped down from Trump and you know within a short period of time was on Fox News. Mm-hmm. Um, Jen Psaki right now, who's um, the spokesperson for the White House is it reportedly in negotiations with MSNBC. So is she talking for the president? Is she talking for the American people or is she talking for MSNBC? Mm, it, it's not really clear. Well, so um, people who like her as a person, will they follow her over to MSNBC just for that reason? Uh, that's the gamble that um, MSNBC is, is making. Um, and, you know, historically that's been the case, like Carl Rove, Sarah Palin, you know, they joined Fox and they draw in large audiences. Uh, you know, David Axelrod would, would jump over onto CNN and draw a large audience. Um, so that's been the, that's been like Simone Sanders is another one. That's been the case. Well, you know, I was wondering about that. So I know a lot of these news anchors on the big network, CNN, Fox, you name it, they have a monologue that's all written out for them. So I know that uh, was recently, when I say recently, maybe a year ago, was that Tucker Carlson got uh, harassed at like a Montana uh, fishing store. You hear about that? No, I didn't know about that. Oh, that was a while. I mean, it was about a year ago, and it was a big deal about some guy came up to him, was totally harassing him in person. It was all on video. Um, telling how he hated him, he was a horrible person, so on and so forth, in front of his children, in front of the store. And I'm thinking about this. The stuff that he says on the news, it's totally teleprompted. So, I mean, I know he has a few opinions and stuff, but there are a lot of just talking heads, re- reading off whatever is written in front of them. So somebody had to write that. It may have not been them. It may have been somebody else, right? Uh, yeah, every studio and, and host is is different. But, I mean, more or less, the, the point your point is well-founded, right, that – these are entertainers. Um, these are not journalists. Um, this is one of the mistakes a lot of people make when they turn on cable news. They think they're getting 
journalism, you're not. You're usually getting like pundit opinions. Uh, this right. is Rachel Maddow. This is Sean Hannity. This is Tucker Carlson. These people are not Shock journalists. jocks is what we call them. Yes, that's good. <laughs> not for, you know, not to gender stereotype, but literally it's like well, shock from, and awe. They is from what radio, they like Sean Hannity's on radio. It would be like Howard Stern doing political commentary on the nightly news. Well, coming up next, you know. <laughs> coming up next, we have a presidential analysis by the one and only Howard Stern. Yeah, I wouldn't watch that because it's not reliable. Well, it's not for you, you know. I know, exactly. And it's, and it's not just um, – like legacy media, either that um, where there's this blurry line between government and and news. Like, um, you know, this was the real important revelations from Edward Snowden was that these tech companies are not only you know surveilling us 24 seven, but they're sharing that surveillance with the federal government. So when big tech you know censors certain content or certain ideas, which they claim are community standards, but the community never gets to vote on the standards. <laughs> you know, they're they're basically censorship by proxy for the government. That is so interesting. Do you – I don't even know how to formulate this question because my mind is just like going in a billion different directions right now. Because anytime I turn on the news, I do wonder, first of all, like who's paying for this? You know, who's behind the scenes influencing what gets reported on? What's the background of the reporters? What are they trying to influence me into? And especially like going through COVID and seeing all of the news media about that and how so many of us were paralyzed in fear for so long – and I mean, it's not to say that that COVID wasn't scary, but it was like so much news media about, you know, be scared, be scared, be scared without saying be scared. Just, I don't know, media is so intriguing. How did you find this passion to pursue this area of research? Yeah, I had um, it's a great, great question. When I was um, sort of finding my, you know, political identity during the, the Bush years um, coming into my late teens, I was really struck by the run-up to the uh, 2003 invasion of Iraq. Um, I watched otherwise rational people saying irrational things, um, claiming that Americans would be created as liberators and that there were weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. And it seemed insane to me that this could possibly be a lie. Um, and then, you know, within two years later, like the Defense Department is saying, you know, there are no weapons of mass destruction there. And within two years, we're, we're being told that we're going to have to be here longer. Um, the resistance is stronger than we realized. It was, it was just a, it was a great example for me at a young age that left an impact on me about like, wow, these media tools can take rational people to support an invasion on just false pretenses that results in hundreds of thousands of people dying. But wait, there's no weapons of mass destruction. <laughs> are, you, are you one of the 25% who still think they might find No, <laughs> I never heard that news. Like, no, I'm not joking. Like, here I am in history and all that. I, I know they never found it, but I thought it was just like they kept hiding them in different places. I'm yeah, not, I'm really not that naive. in that bunker over there. No. And they move it to this bunker. It's no, like but a seriously, because if you think about it, like, just with all of the anger of withdrawing troops from Afghanistan and all of that, people were saying there's still a real incredible threat. But if it's not the people themselves that are the threat, what is it that people are afraid of? Is it that they still think that there's these weapons of mass destruction out there? I don't get it. Yeah, these uh, the the so this is where the thing, this was the great propaganda. So the, the argument for Afghanistan, right, was that they were harboring terrorists. Um, mm -hmm. One of the many one of the many lies that got us into Iraq was claiming that Iraq was responsible for supporting the people responsible for the attacks on 9-11. That also later turned out to be false. Um, ironically, though, you know, there, there's no accountability for these folks. People who told these lies, like Condoleezza Rice and David Frum and Stephen Hayes, 
um, they're in news media to this very day. They still appear as experts. Um, they're talking about Ukraine and Russia right now. Um, and people who supported the Iraq war and have, you know, hid or protected these lies like Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden, they still appear in media talking about foreign policy. Um, so a lot of the folks who were responsible for that invasion that, that was so influential in my life still are in media to this very day. Huh. Why is that, you think? I, I think, you know, it's, it's a great, great question. I, I think we don't really have accountability mechanisms as, as a culture. Um, we get so blinded by the hyperpolarization that we really don't hold folks accountable because we get the, um, the what abouts, right? So if, if I go and I rightly criticize, you know, Biden's record, someone will come and say, yeah, what about Trump? And so I go after Trump and they say, yeah, but what about Clinton? Um, and we never get to a place where we just admit like, aren't we all against corruption? Aren't we all against lies? Aren't we all against like unjust wars? Right. But do you think also that a lot of people here in America, I know myself included, have a very short term memory. So when something bad does happen, we kind of get over it real quickly and we're kind of the next fun new thing. I think I think media tries to make that happen, right? They try and distract our attention. You know, uh, this week you need to be terrified of COVID. Next week you need to be terrified of the Russians. And, and we always move from the, the next thing. Um, but I think that's why teaching, you know, like critical thinking skills is so important because, you know, you, you remember these episodes or you dig deep to, to find out the truth. And then when something comes up again, that reminds you of that, you, you know, you can put that into your perspective. That makes a lot of sense. Now, Dr. Higdon, where can our listeners find out more about your research and the books that you've written to help them become more informed not just consumers, but participants in media. <laughs> um, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Nolan underscore Higdon. And then, of course, they can follow me through uh, projectcensor.org as well. Awesome. And so what words of wisdom do you have for our listeners as it comes to looking at on the horizon, a future presidential campaign and all of these things that are happening to be uh, good consumers of media? Sure. My, um, my recommendation for folks is I, I can, I can understand why you wouldn't vote for, you know, one party or the other, but you know, you should really make a careful case to yourself of why you would vote for one person or another. Um, what are the specific policies that person champions? Um, think about elections differently. Don't think of them about my team versus your team. Uh, think about who you can get in office, uh, that you have the best chance of agitating, antagonizing, protesting, and annoying to get to do what you want. That's how democracy works. Um, so don't look at these people as like heroes or your friends. Uh, look at these people as servants and who's going to get in there to do what's necessary to improve your life. Okay. Yeah, I always think that too is like when you vote for somebody, think of like uh, what did that person do for you? Like how is him being in that office chair? Make her, your, or her. Or, oh, sorry, or her. How did that person, quote unquote, uh, how do they make your life better? You personally make your life better. Yeah, we used to, yeah, we used to, I mean, know this, this is how democracy works. I mean, it's any, any major piece of legislation, um, whether it be like the eight hour workday, the right to unionize, uh, women's right to vote, the abolition of slavery, the civil rights movement, uh, on and on and on. Those resulted from organized people putting sustained pressure on those in power, um, Wealthy people in power have never done what's right for the majority without putting some fear into them. So thinking about voting along those lines more so than voting in your friend or some celebrity you like is going to be more productive to your life. Oh, is that how Schwarzenegger got became a governor? <laughs> 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 Way yeah, to jab, Chris. Can Way I, to jab. Can, 
canary in the coal mine. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? Um, yeah, you know, I mean, I mean, you're both your friend and president. Might as well. I mean, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but that's no different than it was in like middle school and high school, right? Is when kids are campaigning for like. Uh, student oh, body they president. really care about care about policies. It was no, it was. I'm going to get you a vending machine, and I'm going to get you know um, dress code to be a changed. Vending machine, so girls can have shorter hemlines, and I'm going to you know do away with the non privilege list for dances. And people are like, yeah, that's my person. I don't know if it's not different for so many people now. It's like, what are you going to do for me? That fits my needs right now. Well, versus lo- like, what is it going to do for the greater good? I love the uh, the commercials that are opposite. Where it's like, this person sucks because of this, 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 and this. <laughs> that's and propaganda. Then, and then it says, sponsored by so-and-so. <laughs> that's, that's all it is. Sponsors by the citizens that hate so-and-so. <laughs> <laughs> now, Nolan, where can our listeners find your book if they're wanting to purchase? It sounds like you have two books. Is that correct? Yes. I have a, a two out. I was busy over COVID. Um, so the uh, the Podcaster's Dilemma, they can get um, from Wiley. They look up Wiley Publishing. And then um, let's agree to disagree. Uh, they can get through um, Rutledge. And we talked about fake news. So if you're interested in my history of fake news, which came out in 2020, uh, you can get the anatomy of fake news through University of California Press. That's fantastic. Wow. Fake news it is. Christina <laughs> loves, loves fake news. I do not. I <laughs> don't even use, watch you it. You love using that term. You don't watch fake news? I don't watch fake news because it's fake news. <laughs> okay. But you do. Chris. So Chris will be like, honey, look at what I saw on the news. I'm like, that's fake news. It's and he's tr- like, it's not fake news. I saw it on Fox. <laughs> no, I saw, no I, saw it on Bab- I saw it on Babylon B. I saw it on- oh my gosh, that's the worst is he'll send me these clips from Babylon B and he's like, babe, did you see the story? I'm like, it's so <laughs> fake. It's satire, Chris. And then what was the other one that you used to li- watch? The or, onion, the oh, onion? The Onion. Look, it's published. It's pretty true. <laughs> oh, Nolan, he needs a one-on-one with you. <laughs> well, we appreciate you so much for being here on the show with us today. And we appreciate you sharing all of your great resources and research Listeners, definitely check out the notes on this episode to find out more about the books and resources that Dr. Higdon shared with us today. And thanks so much for being with us on the show. Thank you so much. This is great. Really appreciate it. Hey there, K2 crew. We love having you as our loyal listeners. To keep up to date with what's happening behind the scenes, check us out on social media. Yeah, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter. And don't forget to follow our Facebook page. Yeah, tag us in your favorite fun stories. And guess what? You might just end up on the show. Hey, that was great to have uh, Nolan on the show today. Yeah, it was. I was really interested in his perspective about communications and I always like giving you a hard time about your love of Wikipedia and the Babylon Bee and what was it, the onion? <laughs> I love all those reliable sources, especially Wikipedia. It is a PD after all. Oh my gosh. You're just too much. I just can't even handle it. But oh, babe. You know, I'm having a little fun here, you know? I know. Let's a little fun in my day, you know, as I roll. That's one of the things is you are such a jokester. How did you become a jokester? I think what it was for me, honest to God, really, is that... When you try to think of the humor in everything in life and you try to not be so serious, I can find humor in almost everything. It really is a coping mechanism for me when I'm in some really serious, terrible situations. The humor of it all really has got me by and really has allowed me to be me. Mm -hmm. And I know that uh, we've all been through some serious things in our lives. And if you can try to like smile, at least 
through those hard times, it can make everything a little bit better. Well, I do appreciate your perspective and you know, you you razz me all the time just about this or that or your jokester and you know, sometimes it's a little too much, but the thing that cracks me up so much is when we're watching not watching, but when you're reporting these like different news stories to me and you truly believe them, all this like sensationalized I refer to it as propaganda. And I know we were talking about propaganda at the beginning of this interview with uh, Nolan. But what it really is, is, I mean, it's not negative or positive. It's just like sensationalizing different stories or like creating a specific angle on a story to try and get people to believe that. It's like you're making somebody look much better than they really are in terms of like who they are as a public well, figure. Well, maybe it's or a salesman worse. in me, you know, like I've never been a salesman per se, but there's everybody is somewhat of a sales. I guess someone said I could be a good salesman for the most part. If you really could sell. You, are, you could be a good used car salesman. You talk so fast. Hey, now check out this car. Don't mind the bumper. It doesn't fall off. Don't worry about it. We got glue <laughs> to fix that. No problem. <laughs> that duct tape. Yeah, that is Top quality duct tape is going to save you so much. And I know, I know the interest rate is 30, 300%, but don't you worry. The payment's only $5 <laughs> for the next 500 years. <laughs> You're too much. That's funny. I got a car once and the my first used car when I had a really horrible credit. I, I was at a tent sale. By the way, do not buy a car from a tent sale because they will they are very pushy and the interest rates are extremely high. So if hot. you knew that, then why'd you buy one? Well, when you have bad credit and you want to, oh, you need okay. a car, you want a newer car or something, you go to those tent sales and they're, and they're supposed to be like good deals, but they never are. Good Dave deals. Ramsey would say, if you have bad credit and you need a new car, ride a bike. Pretty much. <laughs> or or maybe get some duct tape for your shoes and make them uh, <laughs> new again, <laughs> like new. So I bought this car and I had it and it was... Um, had medium-sized miles. It was only like $12,000, really, which doesn't sound like a lot for a car. But when you have super high interest rates and super bad credit, you're, you know, the interest rate, I think, was like 25% Wow. on a used car. I mean, the payment was like three thirty or three fifty. dollars That's crazy. It doesn't sound like a lot payment-wise. But when the car was only 12000 $12, bucks to begin with. Wow. <laughs> and so, yeah, I, yeah that, I mean... It goes to show you should have at least somewhat decent credit. And I mean, I'm not going to go all Dave Ramsey here on you, everybody. Yeah. But I think I've learned my lesson with that. And, you know, it's just, and have you learned your lesson with not buying into fake news? No. I mean, <laughs> come on now. You're a slow learner. <laughs> you know, I mean, you can't you can't believe everything you read, right? Well, not according to you. You believe everything you read. <laughs> or hear from other people, too. Yeah, definitely. But this has been a great episode, Chris. Where can our listeners find out more about us and more about Dr. Higdon and his studies and research? Well, as far as Dr. Higdon, Higdon goes, uh, we'll put the notes. We'll put the link to all his information in the show notes. But you can find more about us on our glorious, fantastic website, which has been updated, by the way, Ooh. at uh, com. And if you would like to leave us a little voice feedback, we really would appreciate that. Yep. Just go to the voicemail tab on our website and leave us an audio message. And you never know, you might just end up on the show. Woo-hoo, fantastic. And until then, we'll see you guys next, next week. week.